insurrectionists getting at their corpses. Um, the iron coffin was one sort of 19th century reaction to that. Um, you, you, you would pay to bury your relatives in one of these, and because it's made out of iron, it was thought that the resurrectionists won't be able to break into it. Um, in fact, though, these were not much used because they were actually quite expensive to buy in the first place. And then because they didn't degrade in the earth, they took up a permanent piece of space. So the fees to bury one of these were quite prohibitive, even if you could have afforded to buy one. So there weren't actually that many of them used in the end. But you could see people trying to thwart the activity um, of the resurrectionists. And there was, there was a high reaction. I mean, Parliament also had a reaction to this. So right at the, 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 sort of the top levels of government, there is concern about this activity. And in 1795, this is a couple of years before Naples himself enters the profession, uh, th there was a, a bill pr pr proposed to Parliament, the Dead Bodies Bill, um, and it, it was going to make body snatching activity uh, more illegal than it was. So it's only a misdemeanour to be involved in resurrectionist activity. It's not a felony. Body snatchers are not going to be hung for their activity. You know, you might get whipped, you might get fined, you might even get imprisoned if you were very unlucky and your surgeons didn't pay your bail. Um, but, but you're not actually going to get hung for it or do ridiculous amounts of time in prison or get transported. But the Dead Bodies Bill was proposing that it's going to change that, and you can kind of read reports in the papers sort of following its progress through a couple of readings in Parliament, and then it disappears suddenly, completely, it's dropped. Um, so one can assume that behind the scenes, the surgeons of influence lobbying their parliamentary friends. Um, so this is their only access to large amounts of bodies and the dead bodies bill disappears very suddenly. So that's kind of the start of play, really, at the start of the, the 19th century when, when Naples enters the profession. So already, the manner in which he worked as a, as a young resurrectionist when he first enters the profession was already quite a well-established pattern of behaviour amongst resurrectionists. So this is Bransby Blake Cooper. Bransby Blake Cooper is the nephew of the famous Sir Astley. And um, after the death of Sir Astley Cooper, Bransby started to write a book uh, in memory of his uncle. Um, and he collected lots of reminiscences from people who'd known Astley Cooper and who'd worked with him. And one of the things he decided to do in his book was talk about the resurrectionists. Because the book is, is published well after 1832 in the Anatomy Act. So as far as Bransby was concerned, you know, at that point, you kind of consigned the business to history. So it's history. And it is a history a lot of people were very curious about. So he talked about the people who he personally knew uh, and also about people who you know, he'd received anecdotes about relatively freely in the book. And there's, there's a lot of people who he names quite openly and talks about them. And he clearly knew these people quite well because he, he is a, a real sort of treasure trove of biographical sort of, uh, uh, stories and anecdotes about the resurrectionists personally. Um, but, but he also incorporated information from other people as well. And you know, he's a fairly good source about them because a lot of what he says can be corroborated by other sources. And he talks a lot about a man who he refers to as N, which from the details that he goes on to publish is very clearly Naples, who he, he knew 
personally. And so this, this may, I, I, with genealogical information, I'm always a little bit dubious about saying definitely, this may be the marriage record of Naples' parents, possibly. Joseph Naples and a Mary Cleese married in St Paul's, Deptford, in 1771, we know that Naples came from Deptford, so Bransby Cooper tells us. Um, and this is a St. Paul's baptism records for 1776. There is a, a Naples in the index. I intriguingly enough, he's not actually on the page that he's supposed to be on, um, which is a common thread with Naples, actually. Whenever you go to look for him in archives, his documents never seem to be quite where they're supposed to be, according <laughs> to the indexing. He's kind of dodging people even now. He was very good at dodging the law. Um, but this is, this is possibly his, his parents and his father... Um, Bransby Cooper tells us, was uh, a bookbinder and a stationer. So he, he came from a, a, fairly, a fairly good background. Um, and the next piece of information that we learn about him from Cooper, it's kind of going into his, his adult life, it's difficult to know anything about his childhood very much, is that he joins the Navy. Right, so this is the muster book of the HMS Excellence. It's one of Nelson's ships. Uh, now, I, I am no expert on the Navy, um, but Joseph Naples was an able seaman, so that's a fairly decent class of sailor. So he wasn't a, a pressed man. Um, and his name is, is up at the top here, Josh Naples. Um, often you see him referred to as Josh, he, he, or jo Joshua. He was kind of in the habit of abbreviating his name, or his name gets abbreviated to J-O-S-H. But when it's written out in full, it, it kind of comes out usually as Joseph. And it gives his age, 21 years old, from Deptford. Um, and he's on the muster books for the ship. And I've looked through all of the muster books for the excellent, and he's always there. So he was with the ship throughout its sort of period of service. And he was involved in the Battle of Cape St. Vincent. So he actually took part in military action. Their, their ship was involved in... in capturing another ship, so there was prize money involved. Um, and as I said, I'm no expert on the Navy, but I think that the life of an ordinary sailor at this time of history was pretty hard. Um, you, you were stuck on a ship, isolated. Most of the time, there wasn't very much to do other than sort of daily routine tasks of maintaining a ship. Um, and you're, you're in the company of a large amount of other people consistently with very little space and nowhere else to go. Um, and then suddenly, this would be interspersed by you know, a few hours of extreme explosive violence um, as your ship goes into battle. So uh, punishment on board ships was also quite harsh. People were, were regularly flogged uh, and flogged quite hard as well. So, I mean, there's no indication in the muster books that Naples himself was ever brought up on any kind of disciplinary charge, but he must have been witness to this sort of uh, business. And, but, it, but it wasn't, I mean, it wasn't completely a dreadful life to have led. There's a letter from the, the captain of this ship, the HMS Excellent Cuthbert Collingwood, which was later published, that talks about uh, how he tried to keep the men on board the ship occupied. So he'd had them making musical instruments and they had a band uh, when the ship was moored off Cadiz, they're kind of sitting there, trying to block the Spanish port, just sort of waiting. Uh, and he, they were sailors, were kind of playing their instruments and dancing whenever there was moonlight on, on the decks of the ships. So it wasn't all the time a completely horrific existence. 
And there you can see, there's his name more clearly. Again, there it's abbreviated to J-O-S-H, Joseph Naples. A.B. Deptford's 13th of January, 1799, Port Williams. So he's discharged from the Navy. And the ship was being decommissioned. So Cuthbert Collingwood again wrote a letter about this on about the 9th of January to his family saying, you know, my ship is being decommissioned. I'm staying with the ship until all of the men are gone. Over the next few days, they'll all be discharged. So there's Naples, and Naples is discharged. Um, and he gets prize money from being involved in this ship, which, which was a little bit of money, and, and, uh, but he spent that fairly quickly, according to Baronsby Cooper, um, and came back. He, he got a job on a ship, apparently, for a short time after discharge, but he, he ran away from that. He obviously had enough of being on the sea, and came back to London, uh, where he got a job at Sparfield, which was a burial ground. Some map from, from 1814. A, a lot of the maps don't really show it that well, but this is Sparfield here. Um, there's various burial grounds marked on the map. So Sparfield was, um, it, it was a, a big burial ground in Islington. Uh, it's got a beautiful park recreation ground laid out on it now. But at the start of the 19th century, it was one of the most infamously disgusting, stinky burial grounds of London. Um, and it was supposed, when it opened, it was supposed to t take something like 2,000 burials in total. Um, you know, by, by the start of the 19th century, it was taking that many every year. By the 1830s, when Surgeon George Walker wrote his book Gatherings from Graveyards, his public health reformer, concerned about the state of these burial grounds, you know, he said it was quite commonplace. Sparfield had a, had a kind of an oven and it was commonplace for the gravediggers to be picking up the corpses, chopping them up just as soon as they'd been buried, sticking them in the bone house, burning the remains, jumping up and down on the graves and stuff, trying to find, make space to take extra burials. It was apparently always possible to get a burial space at Sparfields, which a lot of undertakers said seemed very improbable, considering the amount of funerals that seemed to take place there. Um, but this is where Naples worked, and he actually had a house on the grounds. So his modus operandi, um, as he got brought into the business, and Bransby says that Naples seems to have told him that a Scotsman called White, who was already working there, brought him into the business. So, I mean, it wouldn't be uncommon for a new grave digger at the start of the 19th century to be brought into the business. And uh, White had uh, apparently had Naples collecting teeth out of the cadavers. So at the back of the room here, there is actually a little dish of Waterloo teeth. It's a commonplace sideline for resurrectionists to pull teeth out of corpses and sell them separately. So they're worth a lot of money, sell them to dentists. And, uh, and then this, this White had him exhuming whole bodies for sale. Um, apparently, he also dealt in extremities. So, you know, you'd cut off a head here and an arm here. A lot of students couldn't afford to buy whole bodies, so you'd buy bit parts. Um, and he was doing that in his house. So he's kind of preparing the bodies in his house. Uh, and one of the witnesses at his trial, his later trial, um, who was his own sister-in-law, according to the newspapers, a, woman, a girl called Harriet Collins, who helped him. She was his lookout and helped him carry the baskets around. Um, she said what his commonplace way of, of working was you, you stripped the body before you even buried it and put it in a sack and then you would bury it in the ground. But you didn't sort of bury it full length. You propped the sack up at the end of the grave uh, and then you'd use the rest of the earth of the grave to kind of hold it upright in the ground uh, and then you, you'd put a couple of 
inches of topsoil on the top of it. So that's really easy to scrape that off at night, and then you can just pull the body directly up out of the ground, and it makes it very easy to move. So when you're a grave digger, you can get this stuff ready um, before you actually have to resurrect the body at night. Um, and there are other cases, the case of William Webb um, in 1810 at the burial ground of St George's, Hanover Square. He's doing exactly the same thing. So there's a suggestion that this was a kind of a common modus operandi for resurrectionists who were themselves grave diggers. So this is kind of the way that Naples was working, and he got away with it um, for roughly about two years before he was caught for the first time uh, in, in, I think it was in very early November of 1801, and the case kind of comes to trial in May 1802. Uh, and the evidence against him is fairly overwhelming, uh, and he ends up here at Coldbath Fields at the House of Correction. Um, so at the time, the, the House of Correction, and he was sentenced to two years in, the local people called this the Bastille. So it was, it, was a, it was a House of Correction, so it was a hard prison to be put into. Um, and they managed to hold on to him, for about a month and a half. And apparently he was set to picking oakum, which was quite a common task uh, for prisoners to perform at the time. So you're picking apart old ropes so that they could be reformed um, into new rope. Um, and maybe it was to do with his naval background, but he seemed very good at making ropes. And he and his friend George Jones made a rope. <laughs> Broke out of their cell at night went out into the gardens, kind of scaled one of the walls and just went over the wall and ran away. So they, they escaped. They broke out of the Bastille. Um, the, the, the really delightful thing about their escape, though, and something that I think says something about Naples' personality, is that apparently the papers reported that within the days of his escape, he had boxed up his jail clothes and irons and sent them back to the magistrates at Hatton Garden with a little note telling them that he no longer needed them. <laughs> so he's quite a cheeky character. People like Bransby Cooper persistently mention that they, they, they found Naples to be timid. This is not the activity of somebody who is timid. Um, perhaps the activity of someone who just knows how to present themselves before their sort of social superiors. This seems to be a birth certificate for one of Naples' children. So while he is on the run from the authorities, which he, he was on the run for roughly a year and a half before they finally caught up with him, um, he seems to have uh, had a daughter with his wife, Jane, uh, and there she is, Mary Ann Naples, born July the 21st of 1803. So yeah, that, that obviously uh, began slightly after the time of his escape in uh, late July or early August of 1802, he and his wife have a child at that point, and it's, it's later mentioned that he, he has a couple of children and a wife to support, although, as you'll see from, from things that I have, it may be common-law wife at that point, in fact. So this is, this is when they managed to retake him. So according to Bransby Cooper, he's retaken in 1804 um, because information was laid against him by other resurrectionists, primarily Ben Crouch. So Ben Crouch, obviously I'm not talking about much about him today, but in the, in the 1810s, Ben Crouch is really the leader of the gangs. So he is, um, and he was an ex-prize fighter, 
and he's kind of a very physical character um, and a bit of a bully. I, I, when I think of Ben Crouch, I always think of Oliver Reed as Bill Sykes in the, in the, the musical of Oliver. So he, and Naples apparently was, was quite nervous of Ben Crouch, probably because of his physicality. Um, and Crouch laid information against him, probably because he was not a part of Crouch's gang at that point, so he's working independently, effectively. Um, and he goes back to prison in February of 1804. And again, when he's retaken by the law, they repeat the famous escape story and they repeat the story about him sending his jail clothes back. It's obviously quite outrageous. He's a bit of a notorious character by that point. And this is his petition. So by December, he's got a petition to the king for mercy. So this is his petition to the king's most excellent majesty. Joseph Naples. And the petition is basically saying, you know, how contrite he is, how dreadfully sorry he is. He, he has a wife and two children to support and, you know, he will never, never do it again, which is obviously completely rubbish. Um, but, but, you know, the, the petition obviously succeeded and the petition had got some fairly influential and important sponsors. Bransby Cooper says that it was Astley Cooper's personal intervention with the Secretary of State that actually got Naples out of jail on this occasion. And that may actually be true. But the people who signed the petition, you can see this, this name on the bottom here is Benjamin Harrison. So he is the treasurer of Guy's Hospital. And he seems to have been quite a lot involved in, in sort of dealings on the ground with the resurrectionists. And there's another letter up at the top here that's kept with the petition from George Harrison, his, his brother. And then this is a, 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 another letter that also accompanied the petition from William Mannering. He's the governor of the prison. Also saying that Joseph Naples is an object deserving His Majesty's royal mercy. So, you know, considering the circumstances of his case, some fairly important people suddenly by, by December of 1804 are supporting his case. Um, and he gets off, he gets free. So in 1806, he seems to finally be pinned down and gets officially married. Um, the reason why I think... I mean, there are obviously other Joseph Naples in London, but the reason why I think there's a good probability that this is him... It's St Giles Camberwell, and it's around the right kind of area, and the name of the bride is Jane Collins. Well, the witness against him at his trial in 1804, uh, who was uh, supposed to be his sister-in-law, was Harriet Collins... Um, so it's the right surname. Um, and he's got his signature on it, Joseph Naples. I'm no expert on handwriting, but it looks like his hand. So there's a fair probability that in the year 1806, Jane Collins finally pins him down to an official marriage. Uh, although, obviously, at that point, they seem to have been together for quite some time um, as a couple anyway. So then he kind of uh, slides under the radar. Though he clearly continues to work in the business and becomes a part of, uh, whether by, um, by choice or by coercion, a part of Ben Crouch's circle. So this is a, um, a couple of pages from the famous diary. So Bransby, um, when he was writing his life of Sir Astley, one of the things that he did, as I mentioned, was collect... Um, reminiscences from other people and he kind of sent people who he knew out to collect these and one of the people who he spoke to about these reminiscences was Thomas Longmore, Surgeon Thomas Longmore who had been one of his dressers 
Uh, and Thomas Longmore, who clearly also knew Naples, bought this manuscript diary. How much Naples got for it, I have no idea. But he bought the manuscript diary from Naples um, for Bransby Cooper to use in his book. And, and Bransby does publish a, a chunk of it in, in the biography. And this, this is in the library of the Royal College. So it's actually on display in the library today. So after we're talking, you can go and have a, go and have a look at the book itself. So it's a manuscript diary in Naples' own hand. So you can see he's quite literate. Um, unlike, unlike many people of the 19th century, you read a lot of 19th century letters and handwriting, it's all very flowery, very long sentences and lots of commas. Naples doesn't write like that. He has quite a curt style. Um, and to an extent, it slightly obfuscates what he's talking about. And obviously, it wasn't something that was meant to be read by anyone other than him. So uh, a lot of the things that he talks about in it, the names of some of the burial cribs that they went to, for example, are, are obscure to us now. Um, but but it, it is really the only kind of example of its kind. Longmore thought it was an important enough document to pay for it. Um, what, it, what it also suggests in terms of the life of Naples is that by the time the early 1840s when Bransby is compiling the book, Naples is at least very probably still alive at that point. Um, and it, it's, it's quite a brusque style, so it goes through from November 1811 to, to roughly, I think it's December 1812, and not all of the months are complete. The most complete part of it is the earlier part, which is pretty much daily, November, the end of November 1811, December, January, February, March 1812. Uh, and it, it really records how many bodies the gang are digging up all no a night, um, where they're selling them to, who their clients are, how much money the corpses are worth to them, uh, how they divided up the money between them. And it gives you very occasional little glimpses into Naples' private life. Unfortunately, he's quite curt about it. He, he quite commonly says this phrase, at home all night. Um, and he quite commonly says, at home all day and night as well. What he was doing at home all day and night is not clear. Um, but, but he quite frequently was. And it occasionally reports how they, you know, they went out to the pub and they all got drunk. They went to the fight. Quite a lot of their circle were involved in the boxing. Two of the resurrectionists, Crouch and Bill Harnett, had been boxers. Um, so that there's kind of an interest in, in that, in their, in their circle. And there's also other stuff in there as well. A couple of the pages have got stuff written in pencil on the back of the manuscript leaves, which have never been published because they're not part of the main text of the diary. But this is things like little scraps of what look like either maybe lyrics from songs or perhaps bits of poetry. It says on one of them, remember me when I am far away. Um, it's kind of scribbled in pencil across the top of it. Interestingly, around, around a period where Naples says he was sick, actually, and there's lots of women's names written in it as well, which is very mysterious. Um, absolutely out of context, just names. Um, I brought one of my early working copies of the diary with me. It's a text copy which I've scribbled all over, as you can see. So we've got Miss Howard, Miss Rachel May, Miss Mayfield, Miss Raphael, Miss Parks, Miss Mayfields. So it's all these women's names, and he blotted them out quite carefully, but you mean you can still read them if you have a look really closely where he scribbled them out. I have absolutely no idea what those are meant to be, but it's interesting. Um, and here we've got a, um, one, of, one of the pieces that, that uh, featured 
in that those first two pages of the diary there that I, I showed you, this is about um, January 1812. The Ipswich Journal, carrying news from London, carried a report of this day, same story. <coughs> so this is an interesting example of uh, kind of a report from the news, and then you get the resurrectionist's own perspective on the event. So it, it identifies um, Naples identifies um, what, what the newspaper doesn't say, which is the identity of the resurrectionist involved. It's this man, Butler. Butler was a, a, an old hand at the business. He's associated with Henry Klein of St. Thomas's as early as the 18th century, and he helped Astley Cooper articulate an elephant skeleton in his house, apparently. So he's a very old hand at the business, and they were, they were taken at, at the hospital crib... So the, the, the newspaper reports where the hospital crib is. It says Snowsfield, so it's talking about the burial ground of Guy's hospital, basically. So this is around the borough. Uh, and the next night, he reports Butler got bailed home all night. So it's, it, it notes down here, in the course of the morning, it's taken before the magistrate and held to bail for answer for the misdemeanour at the sessions. This is commonly what happened. Um, this is an interesting example of, of the, the, the case kind of coming at that case from multiple perspectives. And this is a map generally of the area where they're, they're sort of talking about. So this would be the hospital crib, Snowsfields. But Guy St. Thomas has also had a crib there. And that was the Flemish um, and St. Olav's up there, St. Saviour's. And there was a place called Dead Man's Place up, uh, up in Southwark. And this is the, the crossbones on... Um, off Borough High Street by Red Cross Street. Uh, and this is Guy's and St Thomas's. So right in the heart of all of these burial grounds, there are places to sell them to, sell the corpses to. Things, as Napal called them, things for the surgeons. Um, and over here, it's not really on this map, but there's a street here called Webb Street. By, by the 1820s, Webb Street also had an anatomy school on it. So that's another place you could sell your corpses to. And the diary takes, talks a lot about taking. Um, it, it obscures how much we can, we can get about uh, how many corpses they're actually selling on particular nights in question, because Naples uses the word took a lot. He'll say took all to St. Thomas's or took all to Bart's. Um, and sometimes he means sold. So they sold them all. Um, sometimes he means they're storing them there. And then he reports how they, cut, they come the next day, they pick them up and they distribute them. So their main clients around this time seem to be St Thomas's, Guy's and the schools across the river. So this would be people like Carpew, who ran the Dean Street Anatomy School, Brooks, who ran the Anatomy School at Blenheim Steps, and the, the Windmill Street School, which by this time is being run by Charles Bell. That was a, a major client of theirs and the, the burial grounds that they go to most frequently this place called Big Gates it's not possible now to know what Big Gates was um, but it, it, it's, it's probably local to the borough somewhere um, a place called Wygate again it's, it's, it's obscure where that actually was and a place called Harps Harps seems to have been the burial ground of a private chapel on the old Kent Road um, so again this is the diary and this is a bit more of a personal thing <laughs> This is the moon chart. So the moon chart's never been published. Um, the diary has been published, the actual text of the diary, but the moon chart has never been published. Um, not, not, not sort of officially, anyway. Um, and, and this is Naples working out uh, when the full moon is going to be, using the e-pact. 
So it's kind of a, a bit of a personal thing. So he does say at one point in the diary, the moon was full, could not go out. So obviously full moon, um, the light from it was a bit of a, a drawback for resurrectionists hoping to work in the darkness. So finding out where the moon was on any given day, as he says, was quite useful to him. And you can see at the bottom here, he's worked out the e-pact that he needed to do the sum as far as 1818 on that page. Um, and maybe, I mean, it's, it's, it's not clear where he got this from, but again, possibly his naval background, they did use uh, the moon to navigate in the Navy as an able seaman. He may have known a little bit about lunar navigation, and the, there is mention of e-pacts and the moon in various naval um, books at the time, instructions for, for sailors. So it's possible that that's where he got it from, um, but what he was using it for was working out where the full moon was. So this, this, is, this is his life around sort of 1812, 1813. Now this is, <laughs> this is a, another one of his lists that Bransby publishes. Again, this is him in jail. In Maidstone jail, in fact, in October of 1813, um, and he wrote this list sort of discussing the other people that he was in prison with. So he's always writing lists. This, 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 this does not in, exist in handwritten form anymore, but Bransby published it. Um, and you can see at the top there, he says, chained my hands to my waist from Maidstone onto Newgate. So he was complaining about that. But, you know, he was an escapee. He got on the run from prison previously. So obviously they needed to keep an eye on him. Uh, and here he is in the criminal registers for Kent. So it's J-O-S-H Naples. Ditto felony offence. So they tried to get him for sort of stealing on that occasion, but he was found not guilty. And around the same time... He's in trouble in London as well for stealing corpses from St Pancras, the body of an unfortunate man called David Skeen. Um, and here we can see him in the, in the sessions rolls. And he actually says up at the top, um, remanded to His Majesty's Jail of Newgate at his own request. So he's kind of brought up from Kent to Newgate, chained from Maidstone to Newgate um, for this trial. He was found not guilty on this occasion as well. So by 1819, here he is, being arrested with a man called George Marden, who may or not be the same George Jones of 1804, also known as George Martin. This was in Sutton, so this is outer London. Um, so you can see persistently over those decades he's kind of arrested, and he was well known in the court. It says at the top, who'd been so often charged with similar offences before, so he's a fairly persistent in the business. Now, the 1820s, he actually drops out of sight fairly comprehensively. Um, he stops being arrested or arrests stop being reported. I mean, there's, there's a hint on the back leaves of the diary written in pencil. It says, stolen nine St. James Square, Bristol. You know, he clearly has this manuscript diary a lot of years later. This thing is not dated. It is possible that he wasn't always in London during the 1820s. Anyway, this is Sir Astley Cooper, great friend to Naples, uh, as Bransby Cooper suggests. Um, in 1828, there's a parliamentary select committee into the situation of anatomy and body snatching, and Cooper spoke at that committee, um, yeah. and uh, two resurrectionists anonymously gave evidence. 
and it's impossible to know who they were. And there has been some suggestion that possibly either witness AB or witness CD were Naples. Witness CD, particularly because witness CD produced a logbook and gave quotes of figures from it. And obviously Naples have this diary uh, from which you could <coughs> create such figures. And the years that they... The years that they asked for the figures from correspond with the kind of remaining years of the manuscript diary as well. But, but it's, it, there's no way of knowing for certain whether that was Naples or not. So it's speculation, really. Um, and that's the last slide. There's a, a record for a burial of a Joseph Naples at St. Olav in Southwark. So again, it's the right sort of area in 1843, so this is the year that the Bransby Cooper biography of Sir Astley is published. So this may well be um, his, his, his burial, so he'd have been in his very late 60s, which is quite a good age for a man of that era. And after the business concluded, so this is after he finishes his life as a resurrectionist, the, the 1832 Anatomy Act really draws an end to the business, um, you know, that he was taken on as a servant in the dissection rooms at St Thomas's. So they employ him. And he worked there for quite a lot of years as well. And uh, according to Richard Owen and Bransby Cooper's memories of him working there, he conducted himself faithfully and was a faithful servant. Um, so he was, he was obviously you know, still working for them and they trusted him enough to give him an official job. Uh, but, but during the last years of his life, as many, many people did at that time, he sort of ruined his health with drink disposed to drink ardent spirits. I think Bransby Cooper says, um, ru ruined his health with drink and is somewhat the worse for wear, I think Richard Owen said. Um, and he seems to have finally died in, in, in 1843. And again, there's no way of knowing for certain that this is the person that we're looking for, but the dates and the local area <coughs> seem good. Um, and his name was still being obscured just at that point, which suggests that he may have survived at least until the point of the publication of the book. So that's it. That's the life of Mr. Joseph Naples. So quite an exciting life. I think he was a sailor in the Navy. He saw action um, in, in, a, in a campaign. He, he was involved with the resurrectionist business in London for 30 years, between about 1800 and about 1832, roughly. He then he knew all of the major surgeons of the day. You know, they seem to have regarded him well enough to have uh, got him out of prison on several different occasions. He's a literate, educated man. His various escapades suggest that he had a bit of a sly sense of humour um, and a certain degree of confidence. You, know, you see his attitude change from complaining that, you know, do you not think that this sentence is hard enough for me in 1802 to, to asking very confidently whether this is not a bailable offence in 1813 and kind of doffing his hat to the crowd before he walks out of court with his bail money. Um, kind of his confidence grows as a, as a, as a resurrectionist. Um, and the surgeons clearly regarded him very well, uh, much better than they regarded Crouch, who was a difficult man to deal with from their perspective. They found Naples civil. They said he had a pleasing expression of countenance uh, and that he was slight in person. Something he's someone's quite small and wiry. Um, so he had, a, he had a very extraordinary life. And as for, as for him as an unsung hero of surgery, clearly even up to the Anatomy Act, you know, by 1828, the figures given to the Parliamentary Select Committee is that there are some 600 to 700 students dissecting in London over the winter season. 
So this is a lot of people, and they need a lot of bodies. And it was becoming increasingly dangerous for resurrectionists to work. There's a lot of dogs and watches planted in the graveyards, spring-mounted guns, people being shot at. One of the, the witnesses, AB, talking to Parliament, says, my party was shot out from under me on one occasion. So it was getting more and more and more risky. So people like Naples, reliable people, quiet, persistent um, you know, he kind of kept at it, really, over the course of the early 19th century. Uh, and I, I think the surgeons, those surgeons persistently, um, you know, referred to the resurrectionists as dreadful characters. They're, they're sort of the, the dregs of society, notorious villains beyond reproach. Quite clearly, at the same time, they comfortably resorted to their services um, over the course of a long period of time. Uh, and Naples was certainly one of their most diligent servants, in my humble opinion. Right, so I should probably leave a little bit of time to, to ask people if they've got any questions that they'd like to ask. Mm -hmm. If he died in the second quarter of 1843, mm. did he appear in the 1841 census? No. Well, uh, there are Naples who do appear, so there is possibility that he's, he's yeah. still alive, and that those is one of him. Uh, he is one of them, rather. But, but again, it's always difficult to tell um, if you're definitely looking at the right person. And that's, that's why I say when I present this to you that there's no guarantee that this is, uh, this is our gentleman. But it's around the right era and around the right time and the right place, St. Olav Southwark, which is literally just round the corner from St. Thomas's Hospital. Mm -hmm. What would the uh, resurrectionists get for a body? In the 1810s, for a good adult male corpse, you could get about £10. So the annual yearly wage of a nurse, this, this sort of puts it into perspective, for the 1820s was roughly about £20 to £25 a year in, in hospital and in private situations. So £10 for one good adult body. And obviously individual resurrectionists didn't tend to get the whole sum because they're working in gangs. So a lot of what Naples talks about in the diary is how they split the money up and they settle between themselves. So for an individual, you might be looking at maybe two or three pounds, depending on how many people are working in the gang. But even so, that's a lot of money. It's a lot of money. Teeth were worth a fortune. Another of the resurrectionists, a guy who I didn't mention, he's a character called Murphy. He, he, he ran Crouch's operation in the 1820s, basically. The famous story about Murphy is that one night he managed to get himself into a vault. Um, he, he played a confidence trick on the owner of the vault, basically said he was interested in burying a relative of his there and might he be able to have a look at it. And while they're looking around the room, he, he pulls the bolts back in the ceiling, enabling him to break into the vault at night. Quite comfortably, quietly spent the night in there pulling teeth out of the cadavers uh, and he apparently made himself £60 from one night's work pulling teeth out of these bodies. So teeth were a valuable sideline. Naples himself in the diary talks about pulling out the canines and selling them when the corpses had gone bad. So he couldn't sell them. Mm -hmm. Just one point. Uh, it's something you mentioned. Mm. The college didn't become a college until 1800. No, the, the, it was, it was company, of company of surgeons, and then in 1800 it becomes the Royal College of Surgeons. Yeah. And, and their, their, their teaching programme was, was uh, they, they had one, 
but, but it was not kind of as, as attended in the way that of the private schools and the hospital schools were. So the focus really shifts from the surgeons as a teaching organisation, perhaps, to, to them as a sort of a professional body. No. I don't know, I guess he just thought he wasn't going to get caught. <laughs> he, he, Bransby Cooper says he was a list maker. So he's always writing lists. Um, and uh, obviously Cooper published another one, and then there's the manuscript diary. And there's a suggestion that, um, that over the decades he probably wrote more, and that what Thomas Longmore bought was what was left from that business at that time. But he may well have written more over the years that we simply don't have anymore. Um, but yeah, it is quite an incriminating document. <laughs> it gives names, it gives numbers, it, it's, it's very, very um, open, really, about exactly who they're dealing with, even, even with the degree of obscurity that it has about the exact identity of some of the burial grounds that they go into. Um, the names of the surgeons are not disguised and the names of the hospitals are not disguised. Obviously, he was fairly comfortable keeping this, this private document. And he was, it has to be said, he was fairly well known to the law um, by that point. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, two little questions. One is, um, this, this Southwark gang that he was involved in, Crowder's gang, they were obviously working as far as south as Rygate. Yeah. Is that normal? And do you know what happened to Nathan <coughs> Sessions after he was arrested for the Sutton, or Rygate and Sutton? Um, I don't. His sentence is not recorded, although I'm still hoping to find out him. But George Martin got a month in prison for it. So that wasn't very much. Uh, and and for, 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 for resurrectionists like Naples, doing a short amount of time in jail seems to become an occupational hazard. Um, and quite often that there are records of surgeons giving small amounts of money to their families to keep them while their men are doing time for resurrectionist activity. And people, other resurrectionists in this circle, people like Vaughan um, and Hollis, for example, are directly mentioned in, in Ashley Cooper's uh, accounts. You know, he, he paid on one occasion for them to go down to the country in a coach to collect a corpse for him. Um, so, you know, they, they are individually mentioned. Their families are kind of individually mentioned. They receive payments from the surgeons. The surgeons pay their bail... Um, although, you know, they, they didn't always get away with getting people out of prison. I mean, the, the William Millard case in the 1820s, William Millard's widow, he died in prison while he was in prison ostensibly for body snatching. You know, she wrote this very, or had written this very rich, vitriolic rant against the surgeons, uh, and she accused them of abandoning him and of not helping him. Um, when in fact according to the papers the reports of the trial at the time some people from one of the hospitals had turned up with bail um, and had tried to offer bail but uh, the court declined it said that they were actually arresting him on the vagrancy act he could not account for his presence uh, in this hospital burial ground after dark legitimately Um, so he he wasn't actually being uh, uh, done for body snatching he was being caught as a vagrant and ended up in the House of Correction on that charge. So the, you know, the law didn't, didn't always uh, accept the money that was being offered to them for bail uh, and allow them to get away with it, but usually they did. And, and the, the defence of 
this is for medical science is, is quite regularly offered in court and the, the justices themselves tended to uh, acknowledge that there is this, this kind of greyness about the activity that they're undertaking that you know there is a necessity for the surgeons to be able to dissect and teach anatomy to their students and yet at the same time this illegitimate activity this sort of secret exhumation of the bodies of ordinary people um, was unacceptable and it was almost always the poor obviously who, who are the targets of the resurrectionists because the poor were not buried well and, you know, if you work the grave of a wealthy person, it's probably going to take you some time to do it. Whereas if you work the grave of the poor, there's got to be lots of bodies buried in the same grave and it would be possible to get a lot of bodies in a single go. And, and in fact, the Naples diary records that, you know, on, on several occasions, what they would do is rest for several nights at home all day and night and they'd go out and watch uh, and then they'd hit a burial ground and take... 10 to 13, 14 bodies in a single sweep. So I have this horse and cart, they take the bodies away on it and then distribute them just afterwards. Um, and, and these are the bodies of the poor. And they can get that many in a single go because they're not buried well. They're not buried deeply. He may, he may well have done. It was, it's difficult to tell what his personal um, attitude to that was. Um, but I do know for a fact that one of the other resurrectionists in the gang was mortally terrified of being dissected after his death, and that was Bill Harnett. So Bill Harnett was a... Naples worked with him quite often, and the, the two of them kind of stood in opposition to Crouch. Harnett had a lot more kind of front about it. They'd, they'd fought each other at Wimbledon boxing and kind of knocked each other's teeth out. And they, they clearly didn't like each other very much. Um, so Harnett and Naples were quite often um, partners in the business, trying to quietly defy Crouch. And Bransby Cooper knew Harnett as well as he knew Naples. And in fact, Harnett was a favourite he says, of Henry Klein's and of Astley Cooper's because he was quite easy to deal with and not aggressive like Crouch. Um, and and he, when he was dying, and he died in St Thomas's Hospital from tuberculosis, he, he particularly asked the surgeon, Joseph Henry Green, um, not to dissect him, that he shouldn't be opened uh, after his death and that he should just be buried. Um, so certainly he, he was... He was afraid of being dissected. Going right, right back to the start of the 18th century, there's a guy called Samuel Buxton, who was the grave digger of Stepney Green. I think it's about 1723 or something. And he, he actually died in prison. He, and he died just shortly after his sentence. So, I mean, there's nothing said about it in the reports of his death, but the probability is he got sick in prison, as many people did, and died. Um, and, and he, apparently, according to the reports of his death in the papers, he'd asked to be buried sort of 19 feet deep in the ground so that people of the Stepney would not be able to dig him up uh, and wreak a similar sort of revenge on him that, that he'd, uh, he'd uh, imposed on the people he was digging up. Naples, well, we, we don't know, but what they do say is that he'd been drinking heavily in the last years of his life. So 
maybe from, from sort of alcohol-related illness, perhaps. But, but he, he was also, I mean, in his, probably in his late 60s by the time he died, which, which was a fairly good age for a, a, an, an ordinary person at the start of the 19th century. I mean, work, working people, ordinary working people in industrial Southwark, you know, according to the statistics produced by people like Edwin Chadwick, were lucky if they lived into their 30s. So, at that time, so Naples was doing quite well. I think if he lived, he lived that long. Um, <laughs> is there anything else anyone would like to ask? Mm -hmm. I'm surprised by his excellent writing. Yeah. Where did he learn it really? Um, it, very hard to say. But I mean, he possibly he was taught to write by his father, maybe, or maybe yeah. he went to these one of these little local schools. But he could obviously write quite fluidly. Oh, yes. uh, unfortunately, there, there is no real information about where he went to school. Um, no but but clearly he did. Hmm? No one knows what his parents were. Well, we know that his father was, according to Bransby Cooper, his father was a stationer or a bookbinder. Um, I've, I've looked through the registered sort of stationers and bookbinders, and, and there is no Naples amongst them. But of course, it, it, being a stationer and a bookbinder doesn't necessarily mean he was the owner of a business. He, he may have worked for them and therefore be more difficult to find in kind of records of employment. Um, but, but he seems to have come from this sort of semi respectable, uh, educated background. I've got to stop the questions now. Um, thank you very much, Kirsty. My pleasure. Absolutely fascinating. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I'd just like to say that our next talk as part of this series will be on the 2nd of November. That's mm. begin by Mick Crumpin. Michael Crumpin is one of our own honorary curators who's uh, recently written a book on George Guthrie, uh, Wellington's mm. own surgeon. And um, for those of you who were booked on to hear Alan Chapman talk mm. in September about um, Thomas Willis, that's it, Thomas Willis, Willis the Circle, um, yeah. and it had to be postponed due to the sudden ill health of Alan. Um, I'm hoping to get him back in December because we're quite busy in November, but I'm hoping to find some time to bring him back in December. So please do not distress yourselves. Emails will go out shortly about a resetting of Alan's talk. And thank you very much for all coming today. And please do return your completed evaluation forms. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, good. Glad you enjoyed it. Oh, good. Glad you enjoyed it. I shall go and see the diary now. Yeah, go and see go and see Naples diary. That he wrote, what he wrote himself. <laughs> oh, my pleasure. I, I, I feel there's a, a huge chapter which is going unrecorded at the moment, and you have the knowledge. Yeah, I, I, I will. I will try to actually write something about it at some point. But I, I feel like I've only scratched the surface. I mean, I talked a lot about Naples today, but I haven't had a you know an opportunity to talk about.